following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. We're going to be continuing in John chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And before we start, we're going to just stop and pray again and commit everything that we do today um, to him and, and what he wants to have us learn. So let us pray. Dear God, we thank you so, so, so much for all the gifts that you give us in the Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for all the gifts that you give us through Christ. We thank you for um, new life. God, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We thank you that you've already been with us in the worship. And God, we pray that um, the word of God would go forth. We pray that our hearts would be ready to receive what you would have to hear for us to hear. God, be with me as I um, seek to open your word. I pray that you would be with us as we hear your word and that we would be transformed. And we pray these in, things in your uh, holy and matchless name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to be continuing in this passage, um, uh, John chapter 12, and uh, Pastor Colin taught uh, about... Christ and his triumphal entry, and as Christ fulfilled what it was spoken in the prophet Zechariah, as he rode into Jerusalem as the king, he fulfilled the prophecy, and he rode in um, with a sense of celebration, but also with a sense of sadness because he was weeping over Jerusalem that they did not understand what made for their peace, and he wept over them. And yet he received their worship because they were worshiping him rightly, but yet not right, rightly because they didn't understand what the Messiah really represented to them as they came, as he came to them. And as we approach this passage, we're going to see Christ's work and ministry further unpacked and, and examined. And as we, as we get into this, I'm going to begin by reading this first uh, portion of scripture. I'm going to be going through verse 20 all the way through 36. To start out, I'll, I'll just be reading through uh, verse 20 to 26, and then we're going to make some uh, observations, and then toward the end, we'll do some application. So if you can read with me, verse 20, it's, it begins, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves this life loses it. And whoever hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we see Jesus here is in Jerusalem, and we're coming up to the Passover. The, 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 the triumphal entry has already taken place, and now Jesus is with his disciples and some Greeks who 
are from Bethsaida come to him and want to see Jesus. And they're in town because everybody is converging on Jerusalem. Everybody's coming to the Passover. And anybody who, who, who is in the area who, who, who believes in Jehovah and practices Judaism wants to celebrate the Passover because that was part of the law. Keeping the law is, is to present yourself before the Lord during Passover. And in uh, Exodus twelve forty eight, the law teaches that if you were a foreigner living in Jerusalem or living in um, uh, 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 Israel, that if you were circumcised and believed in the God of the Old Testament, that you were permitted to take the Passover and participate in the Passover. But you had to be circumcised. So these are ethnic Greeks who have rejected the paganism of the Greek religion and have converted to Judaism and have become circumcised. All the males have become circumcised in, the, in, in their family. And now they have journeyed all the way down from Galilee, Bethsaida, which was north of the uh, Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And they've traveled all the way down to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover. And they want to see Jesus. They've heard about him. They've likely heard about him through the people who were uh, the triumphal entry and the crowd that was witnessing to the rest of the city that this is the man from Galilee who raised Lazarus from the dead. And they were crying out, Hosanna. And now these Greeks are curious and they want to see Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus is not distracted. Jesus is not thinking about the crowd. He's not thinking about the Greeks who have come down, who have converted to Judaism. He's not thinking about uh, worrying about all these different things. He's focused on what's about to happen. And he's looking at what's coming. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ's mind is focused on his purpose and he's focused on. On fruit. What is that fruit? The fruit is the kingdom of heaven. Unless God, unless Christ dies, the kingdom of heaven will not come to fruition. And the crowd doesn't understand this. The Greeks don't understand this. The, the disciples don't understand this. He's speaking of his death. And he's going to speak of this more um, directly later on. Whoever loves his life loses it. Now he's he's saying something that. That is most likely directed to the Greeks. He's addressing them. He's, he, he's speaking not just to him. But his disciples and everybody that's around. The Greeks are probably in earshot. Whoever loves this life. Loses it. He wants them to know. They've come from Bethsaida. And so many other people have come from. Even other far flung places in the empire. They would have come from. Egypt and perhaps even Rome. Some of these people came from. Great distances and he wants them to know that if that whoever loves his life loses it but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life and if anyone serves me he must follow me so the, the greeks are coming to him they want to see jesus a lot of people want to see jesus a lot of people want to see a miracle but is anybody willing to follow him that's the warning here. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Well, where is he going? If we're going to follow him, where is he going? 
He's going to the cross. And then where is he going? To the grave. And then where is he going? Resurrection. He's going to the right hand of the Father. Whoever follows Christ will be there. But it requires following him through the cross. They want to see Jesus. They want to see him. They want to perhaps hear his teaching and see his miracles and understand who this man is. And Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. And that's through the cross. Jesus is troubled. Let's read the next part in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says, now is my soul trouble. He's looking at the future. He knows what's going to happen in the next few days. And he says, I'm rejoicing. No, he says, now is my soul troubled. Are you troubled in life right now? What does Jesus say? How does, how does Jesus deal with being troubled? He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Jesus, is it, is it, he sees the circumstances. He experiences the trouble, but he refuses to let the, the circumstance dictate his actions. I have come to this hour. This is my purpose. Jesus, Jesus recognizes and acknowledges the circumstance, but then, but then shifts his focus to the glory. He looks at the circumstances, but he, he, he changes his eyes to look at his purpose. Because he could have looked at those circumstances and been overwhelmed, right? That's a lot of times what happens to us in the flesh. We look at the circumstances and allow them to overcome us. But how does Christ face this? He looks at his purpose. And he says, Father, glorify your name. When we look at our circumstances that should be our focus father glorify your name i don't understand what's going to happen here i'm going to suffer a lot but father glorify your name he would have been in despair if he would have looked at his his circumstances he would have seen the cross and the unmixed fury of god that would be poured out on him and he would have despaired in that moment but he he knew what his purpose was, and he stayed focused on that. In verse 28, the second part through 30, I'm going to read that. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I haven't heard a lot of preaching on this particular point. I feel like a lot of times people pass over it. Maybe I just missed it. But I think it is absolutely astounding that Jesus, when he was walking on earth, teaching and preaching and praying, that he prayed to the Father and the Father audibly prayed back to him out of heaven. Here's a man that when, he's, when he prays to God, God actually talks back. This is one of the most astounding things to me because it's such a testimony as to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is such an evidence of who he is 
The son of God, when he prays to his father, his father speaks back right out of the sky. And John records the response of the crowd is not shock and awe and worship of this man as God incarnate. Instead, they say, what? It's thunder. I think I heard thunder. Maybe it was an angel. So they're all confused. They're all, everybody's got different theories about what they heard. None of them. It, I don't see anything in this text that makes me believe that anybody got it. They missed it. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is standing right in front of them as Messiah and the fulfillment of the prophecy of Old Testament scripture, praying to God with a voice coming straight out of heaven and they miss it. And Jesus is not shocked by the voice. He's not shocked by their response and their unbelief. He's just focused on his purpose. He could have stopped right there and been like, hey, guys, didn't you just hear what did the voice say? It said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. No, Jesus doesn't let that distract him. He's not focused on himself. He's like, oh, finally, I know that I'm the son of God. His identity has been solidified. And he says to them, this voice came for your benefit, not mine. Jesus doesn't even need that encouragement at this point. Jesus is so focused on his purpose that he doesn't even need that. But he knows that the disciples do because the disciples need to be able to have things that they look back on in their weak faith to say, no, he was the son of God. I know he died on the cross and I know that the circumstances don't look right, but I know he was the, I know he's the son of God because of all these things, all these testimonies, Jesus knows who he is. He's not shaken by them one bit. He doesn't even need these miracles. He doesn't need a voice from heaven. In verse 31 through 34, now is judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show, but, but he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard in the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say. That the son of man must be lifted up. Who is the son of man? The ruler of this world is being cast out. What does that mean? Now is judgment of the world. They don't ask that question. They're confused by the second part. We'll get to that. But first this. Now is judgment of the world. The ruler of the world will be cast out. Well, who's the ruler of the world? That's Satan, isn't it? The Bible calls him the God of this age, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, this present darkness. All these kind of things are spoken of about the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of Satan. He's ruling this world, but judgment has now come to the world because God is about to judge his son, And put all of the sin of humanity on his son and judge it with the unmixed wrath of almighty God. And the sin of the world is about to be erased. This goes all the way back to the garden when the serpent came to Adam and Eve and tempted them and, and, and tempted the, and, and, and which led to the falling of the human race into sin 
They lost what the innocence that God had given them. He had given them dominion over this planet. When he, when he created Adam and he created Eve, he gave them the dominion, the throne of, of the kingdom of this world belonged to Adam. And when the serpent came and deceived him, that kingdom was then t- wrenched from humanity by this usurper. And he set up a kingdom of darkness that could not be wrenched from his hands because legally... It it can only be taken from him by a perfect human being. It was given to a human being, the first Adam. It needed to be taken once again by the second Adam, the perfect king, the Messiah. He He wasn't just born as the heir to the throne of David. He was born as the heir to the throne of the entire planet Earth. And now he was coming to reclaim his kingdom. And the only way was through the cross. Because that sin... Had to be atoned for. And until that sin was atoned for. The usurper was always going to have the dominion over this planet. And now he's cast out. How is he cast out? In the courtroom of heaven. God has brought down his gavel. And he has judged. That the sin has been paid for. Now the the second Adam can take his throne. He now has every right to rule. As king. And the ruler of this world. Is now legally bound. To lose all that. He has no right. Over this planet. He's been beaten. It may not seem like it. When you look at the news. And read all the articles. And all the headlines. It seems like Satan. Is actually growing in power. That's an insurgency. He's not really the real ruler of this world anymore. It's a deception. He's deceived. Much of the human race is still deceived. But they can't, they can't maintain their deception forever because the church is getting stronger and stronger. And Christ is coming back. That's the reality that we live in. And you can see this as the church just strengthens. People are always talking about how weak the church is in America. And it's like, well, could it be that you're just looking at a false church? The church in America, the real church, is actually quite strong. The real church in America is actually getting stronger. No matter what the headlines say of how many people go to church now and the percentages of people. who, And, and, and it's not just America either, right? America isn't the world, world. What about South America? What about Africa? What about Asia? What about Australia? What about all these other countries? Christ is taking his kingdom through the church. And he is going to return... And when he returns, it's over. We're told that Lucifer will be thrown into the abyss. And that's what's accomplished here. And we have to maintain that focus. Because if we just look at our circumstances, we can start to believe all kinds of lies and deception that actually Satan still rules this world. And he has control over our lives and all these these lies. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd answered him. Like I said, like I had read just before, we have heard that the the Christ remains forever. They have a wrong view of Christ. We've seen this over and over again. They have been taught. Because notice it says that, that they haven't read this. They've heard this. Well, what does that mean? That means that they were going to the synagogue or to the temple and hearing other people teach. And a lot of times what the Jews would do is they would teach from their traditions. So you'd have... The Torah, 
Then you have the Talmud, which is sort of a commentary on the Torah. Then you have a commentary on the Talmud. Then you have a commentary on that, a commentary on a commentary on a commentary on a commentary. So now we have almost another whole religion blossoming off of this, the original law. And so they're going, well, we heard this and we heard that. And they've got all this wrong thinking about eschatology and about what the Messiah is going to look like and what the end times are going to look like. And I can't help but wonder, isn't this an example for us? We have to know the scriptures. They, They didn't have the benefit necessarily of owning their own copy of the scriptures or even being literate. But we do. We have the Bible. We're most of us literate. If they were deceived about the first coming, could it be possible that many of us, especially those who don't know Christ, could we be deceived about the second coming? Because the second coming in Matthew 24 references false Christs. And a false Christ that will be the ultimate manifestation of the spirit of the Antichrist and the Antichrist himself. And it says that if it were possible, even the elect, if it were possible, it's not possible. But if even the elect would be tempted to fall for the Antichrist, isn't that a warning? Especially to those of us who don't necessarily know Christ yet. Certainly those people will be tempted, if not led away Led astray entirely. We must. It's a warning here. To know our Bibles. About the second coming of Christ. You don't want to be deceived. You don't want to be deceived. About the second coming of Christ. As lightning from the east to the west. That's going to be his coming. It won't be a human being. Elected. To some office. That's not going to be. The second coming of Christ. If that's what it looks like to you, then you're likely going to be deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist. This is a warning. This is a warning. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. Well, that's true. And yet it's false, right? That there's two comings of Christ. There's, there's a first coming where he, he, he fulfills Isaiah 53. If they would have understood that. And, and they said, well, well, that's true. 50, by his stripes we are healed. They would have known that the first coming of Christ was something of, a, of an atonement, a, a sacrifice. They may not have understood everything, but knowing the scriptures is absolutely essential for us recognizing Christ. Verse 35 through 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus was going to go away and he was going to send his spirit. So he went away and there was darkness in a sense, but he sent his spirit. So the spirit of the Lord is still among us. We still have the light. There's still a way open. Christ still has his his arms open, welcoming all who would come to him. And all who come to him, he will not cast out. It's still here. But there comes a, a time when the light is gone. And Jesus is warning of that time. That time is coming. I have four points 
of application. And so we're going to circle around, back around with a lot of these ideas and kind of flush them out and try to, try to give a little bit more application to us in our context. Verse 27, Jesus was troubled. That word is terrasso, same word that we saw when Jesus wept and he saw Mary and the mourners coming to him. He, he was troubled in his spirit. And now he's looking at the cross and he's troubled. Sometimes we can find ourselves looking at our cross and being troubled. And I think we have to remind ourselves, Jesus was also troubled. So if he was troubled, it doesn't make us less Christ-like to be troubled. And sometimes we get this deception and we allow the enemy to come along and be like, look at you, you're a mess. You're weeping. Well, Jesus wept. Look at you, you're, you're so troubled over your circumstances. But Jesus was troubled. The, the, and sometimes we're led to despair over the fact that we're not, we're not always happy. We're not always controlled by or characterized by joy. But the Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows. So when we come here and, and, and then we're tempted, we're tempted to be down on us and, 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 and submit to, to guilt and shame over something that's actually Christ-like. And then we want to bury our emotions. We want to be dishonest to others and also dishonest to ourselves. And ignoring those emotions don't make them go away. That just makes us more conflicted. We're to bring those to God and then focus on our purpose. Just as God, just as, as God wrapped in flesh did. He looked at his purpose and he said, for this purpose I have come into the world. Father, glorify your name. This is an example for how we face trials. We look at our purpose. We look at our destiny. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. It won't be up on the screen. My, well, actually, I think they did get it up on the screen. Yeah. Thank you, Lisette. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For, our, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen, unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's where our focus is. The unseen, eternal realities that will never change, and that will follow us beyond the grave, and that will become our reality for eons and eons of time. Isn't that more significant than whatever we're in right now? Millions of years from now, we'll still be praising God and, and rejoicing with the angels and be filled with unspeakable joy and peace and love and, and, and fellowship. Isn't that what's so much weightier than what we're going through right now, which is a short period of time? Romans eight eighteen. I consider that the sufferings of this 
present time, not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's not even, to try to compare the two, it's not even worth, it's not even worthy of a comparison. That's where our minds have to remain. That's point number one. Jesus was troubled. Point number two of application. In order for there to be fruit in your life, there had to be a death. No fruit comes without death. Just as a seed, when it falls to the ground, it will just remain a seed. You can take a seed and dry it out and put it in a seed bank, and it will be there for eons of time as a seed. And you can take it out, and you can put it in water, and that seed dies, and then it stops being a seed, and it starts growing into a plant. And that plant has the ability to produce many seeds, a hundredfold or whatever, But a seed doesn't have the ability to produce more seeds. A seed can only become a plant. And a plant has that ability. Jesus contemplated his death with the comparison of a seed. And did you know that if you've been saved, you died? There was a death. Because the Bible teaches... That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we died in him. We were with him. Our flesh was with him on the cross. And we died in him. Our flesh died alongside his flesh. The Bible teaches this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your flesh, if you're saved, that old man, that old self was crucified with Christ on the cross. Was crucified. If we don't understand that, that then we're going to allow our flesh and in our deception to have more power than it ought to have in our life. We're going to walk in... We may be saved, but we're walking in a truth that's not complete. And in our deception, we'll, we'll be like, well, we're still in the flesh and we're still, we're still weak and we're still, vi-, you know. And we're focused on this old man that's passing away because it, it's still here in a sense. But your flesh was crucified with Christ. Therefore, it has no right to have dominion over you. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved in sin. But you know what? If you think that you're still enslaved to sin, then you'll be enslaved to sin. You'll still walk like you're enslaved to sin. The, The chains are gone, but your deception is keeping the chains influence over your life. It'd be like, the Emancipation Proclamation in our country. The slaves were no longer slaves. But if they didn't know that and they were far away from the news and nobody told them, then they would have continued to walk in slavery, not knowing that legally they were free. Amen. And eventually they can't maintain that deception forever. Words got out. And the words are getting out now that you're free. You don't need to walk in deception anymore. The fruit will never come 
to its full expression. If you're walking in deception, it comes by faith. It comes by faith in the Son of God. Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. We don't live by sight. Voice from heaven. Point number three. The voice from heaven. The voice from heaven was impressive, but it wasn't necessary for Christ. I don't think it's, it's necessary for us either. We don't need a voice from heaven. Have you ever gotten a voice from heaven? And yet you believe, right? The voice from heaven comes sometimes even when we don't need it. God does miracles that we don't need a lot of times, just as an expression of his grace and, and, and as, a, as an authentic, a, a, a stamp of authenticity to the message, but he doesn't need to do any of that. But a lot of times we try to look to that. We try to look to a voice from heaven. If only a voice from heaven would come and speak to me or speak to my friend, and then maybe then they would believe. But I like what Jesus says in, in, in the parable with Lazarus. If, if they, don't, they have Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't listen the one come back from the dead. A voice came from heaven and it didn't seem to do them any good. They were saying it thundered. And you're going to encounter this in your life where you are going to see people in the face of every single piece of evidence. They will explain it away. Every evidence of transformation in your life. Every historical, scientific, spiritual evidence that there is for the Bible. And they will turn away and they will say it thundered. It's nothing. It's by chance. Right? If somebody speaks to a cloud and it thunders back, well, it thunders all the time anyway, right? If it's just thunder, then it's by chance. You're going to run into these people. Jesus did not allow him to be distracted with arguments and persuasion. I can seem very godly sometimes. I'm just using apologetics. That's fine. If you want to use apologetics. But sometimes we can get our focus so far off and we're trying to convince dead people that there's a God. But a dead person doesn't believe in anything. Dead person can't do anything. We're trying to do things that only God can do. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus does not allow this to attack his identity. He could have said, I mean, nobody believes in me. Even when God speaks right back from heaven, what am I doing down here? <clears throat> what am I doing trying to act as the atonement for mankind? Maybe I'm not. Maybe it did thunder. Jesus could have allowed this to get in, right? Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. He didn't allow that to get to him. People are going to question your identity. What are you doing in this ministry? They're going to be like, I don't believe what you're saying is true. The Bible has been disproven by science. They're going to say all kinds of things. Don't get frustrated. Do not get discouraged. Stay absolutely focused on your purpose, just as Christ did. Absolutely focused. What has God given you to do? What is your purpose? What is your purpose in the church? What is your purpose in your family? It's to be a disciple. That's your purpose. The voice from heaven. And finally, while you have the light, respond to the light. We're not guaranteed 
another opportunity to hear the gospel. We don't have any guarantees of that. You don't have a guarantee that one week from now, you'll have the choice to come to church or not. You don't have that guarantee at all. The only thing that you have right now is this very moment. That's all you have. There's going to come a time in your life where you're going to hear the gospel for the last time. There comes a last time that you hear the gospel. If you're here this morning, you're not here by accident. You're here to hear this warning. If you're not saved, this warning is coming to you. Christ came to make a way for you to be forgiven. He's made a way for you to have new life. To have your sins forgiven. To have transformation happen in your life. He had to die for that. That was the only way. There was no other way. If there was another way, he would have taken that way so he didn't have to die. Because he didn't want to die. Jesus did not want to die. But he submitted to the will of the Father. And in that sense, he did want to die because he loves you so much. He died for his bride. It doesn't make Jesus some kind of conflicted person to want to die and to not want to die. That doesn't make him some kind of sinful, you know, double-minded person. That makes him human. He had to become a human being to make a way of salvation. And that way of salvation comes from repentance and faith. Because what Jesus said at the beginning of this, and this is part of the warning, whoever serves me must follow me. He didn't just die on the cross so that everybody goes to heaven. He's saying that if you're going to come to heaven with me, you must follow me. I follow the will of the Father, and that was through the cross, through a death, through a resurrection, and through an ascension. And it's the same path that all the disciples, every single one, Every single person who is saved, every single person who is a Christ follower follower, goes through the exact same path. And he says, if you will follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me. Christ is, is presented to us this morning. Where are you with Christ? Are you saved? Are you really saved? Are you pointing at other things? Like a voice from heaven or a miracle or this and that. As evidence of your salvation. Or is your salvation in the work of Christ on the cross alone? There's no work of the flesh that can save you. There's no works. There's no being a good person. And I'll dress myself up. And I'll make myself presentable to God first. First, I have to do this. I have to, I have to get right with this person and I have to this and I have to, all these distractions. No. You come to Christ first. Those things come out of salvation and transformation. There's no cleaning yourself up and making yourself good enough to come to God. 
You don't have to attend church for a year before you consider yourself worthy of salvation. You don't have to get baptized first or take communion. You don't have to, you don't have to say a certain prayer. You don't have to do a certain thing. You come to Christ and you come to his work on the cross alone. <clears throat> you receive salvation by grace through faith. Through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. That's an unmerited gift. Come to him begging for grace. Come to him begging for faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and the word of God teaches us the gospel of grace. Come to him. And as we've seen previously, all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. It doesn't matter what you've done. He will forgive you. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.